Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Truth to Power, uh, your happy hour here after work on Friday every week. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the programmers here at Forward Radio. We always gather folks around the virtual microphones in the virtual studio uh, for exciting conversations that you're not going to hear anywhere else on the radio, but only here on Community Radio, Forward Radio 106.5 FM. And you can find us at forwardradio.org where we'll have some uh, program notes and an archived edition of this show if you want to hear it again. Or maybe you're listening now to our live stream at forwardradio.org. Uh, you'll also find a link to this program. You could share it out with your friends. Uh, it's, it'll be posted on SoundCloud, uh, and we'll have some great program notes, too, you might want to check out, because today we're really excited to talk about foraging. Tis the season, my friends, to get out there. Oh, man, we're recording on Friday, uh, the last day of April, and it is just a beautiful day out there. Uh, I was lucky enough to spend much of my day outside today, but I did not do any foraging. I did planting. <laughs> I was being a, a very conventional thinking about how to get food out of the land. <laughs> I hope that that's an acceptable practice for today's conversation. The man you hear laughing, I'm so glad you'll recognize his voice. So glad to have him back on Truth to Power. That's our friend Hart Hagen, host of The Climate Report, which you can hear every day on this station at 7 p.m. Welcome back, Hart. It's good to have you back with us. It, it's so good to be here. I felt guilty being away. Uh, <laughs> I hope this is a, a somewhat regular thing going forward. Oh, wonderful. We had some great conversations I, I without you, man. The prodigal son has, has, <laughs> has circled back. back. <laughs> right. Great to have you back, Hart, on the show. And our special guest for today, his name is George Barnett. He's a forestry tech who is now moved into teaching foraging. Welcome, George. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a looking forward to having a good conversation and definitely tis the season for foraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, every season's good for foraging. Let's be clear. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Uh, but, but let me just say that um, George has started a, a business called The Hungry Forager, providing wild food education and consultation with landowners. And he also sells seasonal wild crafted and wild harvested products uh, and hosts workshops. Like I noticed you've got one coming up uh, next weekend, right? Coming up on Saturday, May 8th, you're doing a, a spring foraging for kids workshop, right? Yeah. Um, so the very first uh, year's workshop started last weekend. So we started with uh, the spring foraging class. That was just kind of a broad spectrum on a lot of the spring native greens, a lot of invasive spring greens that shoot back up. And then, yeah, so this upcoming weekend, we're going to be having one that's kind of geared more towards children. I started doing those uh, last autumn and they really were just successful and really engaging and the kids love it. And there's not really a better time to start learning those, right. those wild foods. And, you know, uh, what better yet to, to learn that when you're that young. You yeah. So folks can learn about all of this and and maybe sign up to participate at thehungryforager.com. I'm sure you got social media too, but uh, that's a, that's the home base, thehungryforager.com. So uh, what kind of ages of kids are, are you suggesting this workshop for? I mean, kids will eat anything, right? <laughs> you know, surprisingly, they're, yeah, they're a lot more open to try things than their parents <laughs> and then also the adult uh, classes. Uh, so... Yeah, you generally the ages start around four or five. Um, that's that's about as young as I'll recommend. Yeah. Uh, 
I won't turn away, but you know, it, it, in regards to actually maybe taking something away, um, four or five generally, uh, and then I, you know, they go up to 13, 14 and, and it's really interesting to see the dynamic, uh, of just a group of a dozen kids of various ages and upbringings, uh, for one, just participating in nature, interacting with it. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then just for them to be able to learn and have that small enlightening type of conversation with their parents and other people's parents about trying something or something that that might've, you know, had in their backyard for their entire childhood or just then realize out in the woods or something that it's edible or that, you know, that there's something about it to look out for once a year. So it's, it's really, it's really a lot of fun. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I would have loved to do that as a kid. I, my parents didn't teach me a thing about foraging, uh, but I'm, I'm super into it now. I don't know as, as much as I should. I'm always learning more. Uh, and and I, I think you're totally right. It's like, it's one of the best ways to sort of uh, reconnect with natural systems and ecosystems is to start looking for things as if you needed to depend on them because we truly do. We just, yeah. We just create these imaginary walls as if we didn't depend on nature, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just kind of hardwired, uh, you, you know, you could say uh, unfortunately for modern times and, you know, and, and particularly for Western, you know, culture and traditions, at least modern, it's uh, it's a lot of forgotten stuff, right? And so I always stress during these workshops that it's not so much that I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to re- re-educate what we've forgotten as a species and that's really the angle is that you know everything that we you know get at kroger or whole foods that that all had a wild cousin our ancestor and that's what those species are that we're out there looking for in the spring and autumn and in the summer so it's just really important to kind of have more of a remembering than more of a, a learning so. Yeah, you're kind of returning on a part of your brain that that's been off for a while when you start foraging, exactly right yeah there you go you got it. Hart, have you been doing foraging? I know you really love wild plants, but I, I, I haven't talked to you too much about this particular issue. I'm, I'm but a babe in this area. <laughs> I mean, I, I, somebody, I, I went to Red River Gorge recently with Barbara, and uh, we, you know, I kind of had a little bit of tea berry, and then there was just something, I forget what plant it was, but it, it, it reminded me of sweet grass. My dad, uh, or it was something that my dad called sweet grass, and then there's this book by... Uh, Robin Wall Kimmer called Braiding Sweetgrass, fantastic book. And but this whatever it was I was eating, it gave me the um, uh, it reminded me of sweetgrass. And all of a sudden, huh. I remember being a kid like on my lawn and just picking up sweetgrass and eating it. Don't even remember what it looked like, but the taste I can taste it now. Wow. So, anyway, but I'm I'm eager to be taught because you know supposed to be this climate guy and uh if we, the more we can get our food locally yeah uh, i mean you know the i like saying that the earth is on a weight gain plan or the earth naturally is on a weight gain plan the earth wants to gain biomass and we do everything we can to sabotage all that through mowing and and uh, deforestation etc but the earth naturally uh, you know gains biomass over the course of time so sun and water is going to produce a lot of food if we'll let it and i think uh, george is going to teach us how to recognize some of what we can eat yeah so george tell us your story of how you got into foraging before we dive into some of those details of what people can start looking for here in the spring yeah sure so 
roughly 10 years ago, I was just heavily into backpacking. Um, at the time I used to carry more camera equipment with me than field guides and uh, foraging baskets and containers. Uh, and I was going out and shooting a lot of 35 millimeter film and Polaroids of different trees and really uh, macro shots of bark and fungi and things nice. like that. And I wanted to be able to figure out what species I was, you know, documenting. And so then that led to me getting into field guides and then started questioning more uh, about, you know, just ecosystems and how, why are there certain native plants, why, what makes them work together, what makes an ecosystem more or less. And uh, then that led into me uh, leaving home with more field guides, less camera equipment to, you know, to now where I'm just going out and just going out usually with a basket or two or a couple of mesh bags and uh, trying to interact with these species and make them a part of my life as consistently as I can. And so really it was just a lot of curiosity and I feel like the curious side of me and almost the accidental paths that you take can sometimes lead to the most fulfilling and maybe the more, uh, in intuitional, uh, in, in, uh, in hindsight. Yeah. And so that was really where it began for me. And, uh, mushrooms, mycology kind of called to me largely. Uh, that was kind of a, a really, um, attractive part of foraging, but also just ecosystem uh, rehabilitation. And that was something that led into the interest of, you know, how do I go out and identify these species? And then uh, that led to spore prints and, you know, all these other fun little characteristics. Hallucinations. <laughs> no, yeah, ne never had experience with those, but, but, you know, really learning that side of uh, ecology and how, so much of our plant material and woody, uh, you know, plant material, how all these different woody plants, herbaceous plants, uh, all really work together through a network of uh, mycelium. And that, you know, that being basically the actual structure of what produces what we call a mushroom, which is more or less the fruiting structure, you know, can, in the sense mycelium is, uh, I'll, I'll use a term here as, uh, lay it on. Uh, an apple tree, right? And, you know, the apple is the mushroom. That's effectively exactly what that system is. They send up fruiting bodies for the uh, purpose of reproduction. And so, you know, so many of the, uh, so much of the work that mushrooms and fungus does is, you know, they're recyclers of woody material. They break down lignin and cellulose to trees. That's why we're not under an ocean of wood it's, yeah. it's all thanks to them right <laughs> and uh as well as all the other plant material that's why we're not under an ocean of leaves you know mm -hmm. uh so they do so decomposers much are so underrated their decomposers are so underrated and under recognized in the food system mm -hmm. the food web correct and uh and and that's again it goes back to trist trying to kind of show folks what we've forgotten um you know they've been a, such a large part of uh homo sapiens diets uh ethnobotanically speaking they've been you know part of our diets for such a long time you know even dating back you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years they were used medicinally you know there was that there's that famous otzi the Iceman, who was found and he had a a polypore uh on his little uh on his satchel and the, the polypore that he was found 
to have on him was used as a medicinal resource. Really? And yeah. And so he, he actually had two. He had one that was commonly used even still today as a medicinal tincture or tea type of resource uh, for colds and for immune system uh, boosting. And then he also had one uh, that's used uh, often for tender. It's called a tender polypore. And you can actually use it to kind of carve out pieces of the underside surface where the pores are. And that creates a little bed that you can uh, make em- put embers into and you can kind of smolder fire with for huh. quite a long time. Um, but yeah, they just have such a utilitarian use that, you know, people just see a mushroom and they think, you know, uh, Mario, or they think, you know, the toad, the classic agaric toadstool. And that's really all that there is about mushrooms. And I, th- I thought drugs came from pharmaceutical companies. You're telling me <laughs> medicines can come from plants. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a whole uh, cabinet that's filled with uh, everything but pharmaceutical medicine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and the great part about it is, and, uh, you know, and I'm not going to say that those medicines are free, right? Because everything comes with a cost. Um, and, th- and that's not even really, you know, I'm not referring to my time going out into the field to harvest those things or maybe process them. But, you know, everything, whether it's just natural, uh, na- nature producing those things for its intention on reproduction, on just uh, just being, you know, everything comes with a price. And uh, when it comes to you know, making medicines anyway from nature, Uh, because really every food out in nature, you can can you can consider a medicine. That's really the fun part about it is, you know, if you go to the store and you don't make a list of groceries, you end up getting all this stuff that you're like, oh, man, I was hungry when I went to the store. Now I have all this food or this and that. Right. We've all been. I have a question. George, George, is a variety of foods. Is that good? Because we were talking at one point and you said that, you know, we were talking about how our food that we get at the grocery is often nutrient poor and you were talking about the number of there's a declining number of different foods that people typically consume in a year's time can you share some of that with us sure yeah so when it comes to store uh, store-bought food you know those are engineered uh, monocrops right and so that is a low nutrient high yield type of system that we have engineered and so for the you know, the concept sounds nice in a way to feed everybody, but what you're producing to feed people with is something that is very low in nutrients. You, you just right. have, you just have more, you know, mass as opposed to actual nutrients. Right. And so when it comes to wild plant material and the studies on them that you can find online, field guides, um, or even just take it upon you to consume those and see what, how you react to them as far as your, your, your body and how you, you know, maybe how you feel after eating, you know, wild greens for a week or a month or what have you. But yeah, so there's generally 30 to 40 foods that a standard American would eat in a year. That's about how much variety there's going to be when it comes to natural foods. I'm talking vegetables and plants, primarily fruits, all that stuff. Uh, any kind of uh, naturally occurring type of food like that, it, it's about 25 to 30 in a year wow. for standard American, right? And a lot of that also comes with so many of the species that we are commercially selling and consuming so much. They're all really the same, you know, family, you know, basically the Brocaceae family, uh, you know, so you're talking 
kale, uh, broccoli, um, spinach, so many of these different leafy greens and green type of vegetables, they're all in the same family. Um, and so they're just different varieties of the same species effectively. Although they taste different to us and we prepare them in various ways, uh, you're getting the same nutri uh, nutrients out of them and not a lot of variety. And for anyone who knows about uh, healthy ecosystems knows that that is founded through diversity. Uh, so when we lack diversity in our diets, we're setting ourselves up to not be as healthy and as functional and as defensive as we should and once were. So right. when it comes to eating wild food, I really try to stress without preaching that you're not only connecting with nature and connecting in a more intimate, tangible way with your local landscape, but you're actually benefiting your body in a way to where it's going to be getting nutrients that we hundreds and thousands of years ago had to get us to a point in our lives where we are today. Mm -hmm. But now we're not having that no longer in our system. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, <clears throat> you know, the, the standard, at least in, in, in my coming to age, I'm 28, I'll be 29 this year. And, you know, whenever I thought about you know, vitamin C growing up, I thought of Tang commercials with like the gorillas, right? And, or the apes with the tangerines. And that's what I considered what was vitamin C or what vitamins were in the uh, Flintstone gummies, right? And yeah. so you're kind of, you're, you're told, showed and sold all these things uh, in this type of culture uh, through marketing and through colors and what have you. And so you kind of get this misconception of what actually where those things were spinoffs of engineers from. It's almost kind of like we're getting Fast and the Furious 12 when Fast and the Furious 1 is just out in the woods, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so, you know, for example, uh, something that you can go out and harvest right now, like woolly violets. And, you know, they're greens, right? Yep. Uh, like a cup full of just the greens of woolly violets will give you four to five times the about, uh, amount of vitamin C as you know three or four uh large tangerines wow right and so you're also talking about just a consumption difference too and how much you're actually needing to consume to get to those levels it's just some of the numbers and some of the comparison uh, comparisons are just really astounding because you're just like you read these things you look into them and then actually when you've lived them a little bit and you can actually you know firsthand that, that those things are not false and that you are going to be uh, feeling good and feeling better with, you know, not this super restricted diet, but even, even if you're just allowing yourself to add that to your store-bought food, right. Mm. You're going to tell a difference it, and it's pretty profound. Mm. Um, and when it comes to how much time we can put into doing this, you don't have to put in a ton of time. That's that, that is one question that I'm often uh, faced with during or after shops or even just through you know emails through online because i'm pretty active we have a pretty active facebook page and so people you know reach out to us on there and and through our site and um they'll ask questions like you know how how many you know how many hours a day do you forage and it's like i have a full-time job you know i have a <laughs> i have a i have a nine-year-old son who's obsessed with soccer i have a lot going on but if you go out you know and we might spend three to five hours on a at probably one particular day out of the week where we go and harvest greens or 
you know, it just depends on the season, of course. Right. That could be, you know, a day of mushroom foraging. Yeah. That could be a day of wild, wild blueberry or wild blackberry foraging. It just depends on the season. But you don't really have to put that much time into it. You know, you can if you have that time, but uh, you don't really have to put in, you know, you don't have to quit your day job to go and forage. Um, as beautiful as that sounds, you know, <laughs> most people can't do that, right? Because um, eventually you're going to run out of gas to get to the forage, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, it's one of those things where it's all relative to your life and how you can make that fit into your life. And I think that we owe it to ourselves to be able to fit in as little as we can just for the purpose of doing that. And so if you, for people who have backyards that have weeds uh, that might have, you know, violets or any of the cool weathered uh, weeds that come up in your yard, they're not out of 10, they're edible and really tasty when you pick them at the right time. Uh, now, of course, that comes with also realizing where you're harvesting those edibles. You know, you can't, uh, you don't want to be, I would never really forage wild greens on a city sidewalk, you know, downtown. And that's really just because those areas are treated, right? They're treated for weeds. And so you have to be cognizant of where you're going to be collecting anything. I mean, that even goes for fruit trees. Uh, you know, if it's in an urban area that you know, you know, you that you've been to before and have seen, you know, herbicide pesticides being used at, you got to be cognizant of that. But you know, I will say this, out, though, George, if you go into the grocery store, everything you see has been oh treated. My right? <laughs> so, oh, my God. If you want, Bingo. That's a great that's a great point. The question is how many billions of pounds are added to our fields <clears throat> in the end of year's time? You know, billions of pounds of, right. uh, of pesticides. It, no, I mean, and that's a great point. And it all comes back to what can you do to offset that? Mm. What can you do to make it? work for you. And so, you know, if, if I were to go out and, you know, buy a big, uh, you know, two or three big bushels of kale to make a nice, you know, spring summer salad with, but I can also go out and have an equal amount of maybe some chickweed or some violet greens or some wood nettle to add to that, you know, then there you go. Right. And then you're going to need less of the store-bought food. So it's all about making it work for you in whichever way you see fit. Now, having said that, when you do have the time or if the season permits it, or even if you just have a great area to forage those things, by all means, I would totally advocate to eat that exclusively if you could, because it is more nutrient dense. You don't need to worry about where it came from. You don't, you know, and a lot of things too, it's like, think about it. It's no different than having a garden. If you go out and pick some Swiss chard or some kale out of your garden, you know, think about how much longer you have to actually consume that before it goes bad. Mm. Right. It's the same thing with foraging, whatever you collect, once you drop, you know, once you get home with, with your, with your harvest of whatever it may be, you're given a lot longer time to actually do something with that either fresh or you can take the initiative depending on what it is to you know to process it to eat at a later date and that's also a huge part of what we do which also allows us to be able to eat wild food every day of the year if we want to it's because there's so much you know i'm i still have two uh, probably two or three gallons of red oak acorns that are mm. now fully dried but you know they're sitting in an area where if i want to make an acorn 
uh, pie crust this weekend, <laughs> I, I could, I could at least start that process and we already, you know, and then you, you can always just pull from different areas. Usually we harvest enough low bush blueberry to freeze. So anytime yeah. during the year we can break them out, add them to our oatmeals, pancakes, muffins, or just eat them like, you know, dinosaurs and just shove them down your face right out of the freezer. Like <laughs> frozen. So, you know, it, and, and that's one of the fun things going back to like kid workshops is, you know, they always ask like, does everything need to be processed? Or they're like, how do you eat it? And it's like the, the best answer that I love giving kids in particular is there is no way you just eat it and you just shove, you know, a huge fistful of chickweed into your mouth and you're just like, it's delicious, you know? And it, it just, it really, it really is something primal to it. It's just this going back to nature action, I'll call it. It's just something that once you start to engage in it and interact with it, it's, you don't see those places the same way. And I don't look at seasons the same way anymore. I used to always associate seasons with something that was human. And now I don't. Now I associate seasons and months with certain wild edibles. And I feel like that is a more responsible perspective as a human being. Hmm. because we're here because we eat food, right? We have mm-hmm. to eat to live and we have to rely on that, or at least we did at some point. And that, and we weren't relying on, you know, DoorDash or Amazon prime for that. It was, we need to go out here and collect this or, you know, our community doesn't eat. And so it's really just a great uh, way to, again, connect with your land and also to figure out a little bit more about what you're after in nature and how you can, better have a relationship to let it become a part of you too. That's always a thing too. It's like, whenever we do eat acorns, I always make the joke, you know, to my son anyway, that, you know, we're eating oak trees, right? It's like, this is becoming a part of us. And if you see a beautiful plant that happens to be edible, it's like, that's becoming a part of your tissue, you know, and it's just a beautiful way to look at it. Our guest today here on Treat to Power is named George Barnett. He is founder of The Hungry Forager. He's always hungry. He's looking for more. <laughs> he, he will come to your door and help you see these wild foods. You can learn more he about them. you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can learn more about them at thehungryforager.com. Uh, there's, there's many great, exciting workshops coming up. We mentioned the Spring Foraging Workshop for Kids on Saturday, uh, the 8th of May, but then on June 12th, you're doing a, a medicinal mushroom workshop, too. And I saw that you uh, actually sell some tinctures, some mushroom tinctures on your website. Tell me about that. I've never even heard of uh, mushroom tincture. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so basically there is a whole family of fungi that are deemed as polypores, and they're definitely not the only medicinal uh, fungus out there. But there are two that I have commonly collected and have processed into medicine and huh. uh, two, two of those uh, both which grow in central Kentucky they're all throughout really North America and yeah so they're hard chitinous polypores and what chitinous means is oh, that they're yeah. just very tough they have a really thick cell wall so it's not something that you're just gonna eat like you would with an oyster mushroom right. or with a chanterelle but they're these shelf-like fungus that break down cellulose lignin in the trees right and a lot of them will flush various times throughout the year. And what uh, I will do is harvest them 
and then we'll grind them up with a, I have a kind of like a dedicated spice grinder that I got right, for right. all herbs and uh, medicinal fungi. So uh, I'll run them through that and just to kind of release the, you know, surface area. Right. And um, what I'll generally do is I'll pour those into a really uh, large sterile glass jar, uh, add some 90, 80 proof brandy or vodka to that. Now uh, you're talking. There you go. <laughs> Derby and, time um, right here. <laughs> and you generally let that uh, sit for like six to eight weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, and really it's more of a, you know, it's a, it's a preference thing, but generally six weeks is shown to be kind of that magic time frame. And that time frame, uh, what I'm referring to is that's about how long it takes for the alcohol to pull out the alcohol soluble contents, okay. which are triterpenes. So for example, there is a medicinal fungus called turkey tail, yeah. Latin name, Tremedius, uh, Tremedius versicolor. And that's a very common, ubiquitous fungus. Uh, you, you see it on almost it's beautiful. any kind of hardwood. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It grows on oaks, uh, elms, ash, all kinds of different species. So you see it in a lot of places. Um, and so that is a, a definite one that we would use to make for tinctures. Um, that actually has a lot of uses and, and just abilities, too, because you can actually just take that and make a tea. You can just put it in water and let it simmer for two or three hours and then you have a really nice kind of mild savory tea huh. um, that you can sweeten with stuff like maple syrup or honey um, but doing tinctures with it yeah you just add it to your alcohol of choice let it sit for the six to eight weeks <clears throat> and then you usually agitate it once or twice a day uh, just to kind of you know mix it around make sure everything's uh, getting movement um, and, and of course, you don't really have to worry about anything going bad in that period of time because you have such an, a high alcohol content. Um, once that time is, has uh, elapsed, we would then pour that, strain that alcohol out, put that into its own jar. And then you're left with this alcohol soaked uh, turkey tail material that's been ground up. Right. And then we would add that to a pot with some spring water. And then we would do this basically the tea operation. To that so we would put in spring water and then let that uh simmer for three to four hours and then what you're doing is you're pulling out the water soluble compounds which are polysaccharides these two compounds when mixed together act as kind of like a two-in-one medicine so you have your polysaccharides which are basically working to help with inflammation your gut biome uh, liver detoxant and then you're also getting these triterpenes from the alcohol extract. And that's working for stuff like <clears throat> uh, anti-cancer, antibacterial. And you're adding those together to have both of the constituents that they can provide in, into one tincture. And so once you have that tea that you've made with the water part, you add those together. And then what that term is called is a dual extract. So you're, you've taken two extracts added them together and you have a dual extract. And so a turkey tail, that's definitely one that we do it with just because it, again, it's so gregarious and so commonly fruiting. So you, there's never really going to be an area where you won't come across it. It's not rare in any way. And then we also do it with a larger fruiting body, which does grow in Louisville, but we uh, commonly harvest it in more of the Eastern Kentucky 
half or the Appalachians, and that's the Ganoderma uh, reishi mm. mushroom. It's a huge, beautiful, lacquered in appearance, red polypore. And we do the same process with it. It's mm -hmm. the exact same process. Uh, reishi, the only difference is that it's usually, um, it, it kind of has more of a different use for it. It's uh, for people who maybe have sleeping issues. It does cause mm. a sense of ease and calm. Uh, but it also does act in the same way as far as kind of building up your immune system with all those polysaccharides and triterpenes. So there's a whole other world of medicinal fungi that could make this go on for 18 days, which we won't do. But uh, you asked for it, Justin. So uh, so that's what that's what we do with those tinctures. And and that's definitely a great uh, part of those workshops when we come across those species, because I try to paraphrase as much as I did just now. Uh, but you have these medicines that are just out there, right? And well, let me they, ask you something, George. This I heard sure. this yesterday, and I, 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 I uh, really know my limits when it comes to health and you know medicine and things like that. But I heard something that made sense. I don't know how it's how if it's out there, and it's I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Zach Bush, but I discovered him yesterday. Um, but he he was saying that many of our diseases are uh, the common root cause is inflammation you know cancer alzheimer's parkinson's uh, are you know a result of of inflammation in different parts of the body and i was just wondering you know do some of these medicines do they do they naturally deal with inflammation that's a great question and from my personal experience because this is kind of that's a that's a question that can be untruthfully answered to what I call the armchair forager, which is someone who <laughs> maybe has a few field guides or has a, is in a few Facebook groups, but doesn't really interact in a way that they can speak from experience. And, and I'm not trying to throw any type of light on those people, but when they, when they try to definitively answer something, that's where there's a problem because then you're creating a false narrative. And so in that regard, uh, there are plenty of wild foods and, and medicinal foods. Uh, I, I also like to just, I'll reiterate that most wild foods are medicinal foods, that they just kind of happen to be hand in hand. Um, but in regards to the inflammation and stuff like that. So for example, like dandelion, right? Everyone knows that that's, that's probably one of the top four or three wild edibles that most people know in a household. Yeah. And so dandelion, dandelion dandelion root in particular uh when used to create a coffee tea like beverage you know that's promoted to uh, offer digestive you know calming and that's a direct you know impact to the inflammation in your body huh. right so for example if you were to be in a in a state of being bloated or just feeling you know some type of way that made you feel lethargic or bloated or crampy dandelion root tea is like what we would drink in this house to combat that and it's such a ally to our household because that's what we use you know we don't go and get pepto or tums or something that looks like you know antifreeze and say <laughs> let's do this <laughs> right but we, we we try to use these things that are are local and that are localized to their utility to us. And, you know, so there are definitely species out there, whether it be herbaceous, fruits, 
or nuts or our fungi, you know, that native people, they didn't have, um, you know, banana boat before they went out to go swim or hunt for the day, right? For the sunscreen, they would eat berries that have very endowed anthocyanins. So they would eat choke cherries. They would eat huh. uh, blueberries that has UV protection really? in those fruits. Wow. And so it's, you can almost kind of just word it as I always say, I eat my sunscreen. And it's because <laughs> that morning I might have a, you know, a smoothie of blueberries and choke cherries. Um, but you know, all medicines, all things that we associate as being medicinal, they're all naturally occurring out in nature. We've just found ways to, you know, synthesize what we maybe are considering to be the most uh, potent part of those species. And we slap a label on them yeah. and there you go. But, uh, don't forget to patent it. <laughs> there you go. Well, and that's just the thing too, right? Uh, that's why you're not going to see this boom in wild foods or particular yeah. species in general uh, to be used for certain in, in lieu of, you know, a huge bottle of plastic petroleum uh, sunscreen. You know, they're not, you're never going to see a company that says, just go out and, you know, <laughs> eat, eat, a, eat a fistful of, uh, you know, blackberries or aronia berries and you'll be good to go because they can't patent that. And it goes to the same thing with the medicinal tinctures and, you know, you medicinal tinctures go to everything. That, but they think they can patent Yeah, it. they think they can. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they think they can do a lot of things and, <laughs> and some of them get away with it. They right? patented and the so, name tree for one thing. The name tree. Yeah. Yeah. They, they patented basmati rice. Anyway, but oh, I digress. <laughs> so what, what else can we eat? We were talking about garlic mustard at one point, which is an invasive species. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You were saying, George, that you can, I mean, if it hasn't been treated chemically, uh, you can eat garlic. So how do you, now's a good time of year to be thinking about garlic mustard. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, four weeks ago was a good time. Yeah, yeah but, um, a little late now. So, okay. so, so garlic mustard, it's uh, it's probably one of the most invasive herbaceous plants that I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really at the top of that line, and so, uh, and it and it can be treated uh, with foliar sprays, but generally, it's not for organizations that know how to eradicate it. Generally. Yeah, generally it's a pool and trash bag situation mm -hmm. if they actually are trying to eradicate it before it goes to seed, of course. Um, but in regards to its edibility, when you do harvest it at a younger state, so, you know, from my experience, it's generally uh, the last uh, week or so of March up and through uh, mid-April. And at that point, it's not really even formed flowers yet. But, mm -hmm. you know, you have this tender green that, is very garlicky, but you know, if you harvest enough of it, you can freeze it. And then you have potentially, you know, pest uh, enough, uh, plant material to make pesto for, yeah. you know, seven to 15 servings worth. Uh, and it's delicious. So I like to add it. Basically we'll put it into a blender or a Vitamix with like avocados and some mm. pine nuts. And then you have this delicious pesto, mm. but you know, when it's just sitting there going to seed and then creating its forever long rhizome, you know, crowding out the soil for, you know, where nothing else can grow, you know, that you're really missing out on an opportunity for food there. Um, 
So that's one of those species too, that I really try to implore people to harvest because it's a delicious food source, but you're also kind of, you know, you are being an ecological steward and removing it yeah. uh, because you're, you know, giving the native plant material room to grow. Um, and for, you know, those who don't understand what a rhizome is, that's a, a effectively a, a horizontal root and stem system where it just shoots into these colonies and crowds out anything else from being able to grow in those, in those areas. That's why when you see garlic mustard, you're never just going to see one, mm. you know, you're, you're going to see a huge colony, like almost like a field of it. But that, that's definitely a species that is incredibly invasive. It's popular with the foraging culture just because it is so abundant. And if you know when to harvest it, you know, you're doing, you're doing a really good deed. And again, you're left with a lot of food. So what yeah. kinds of things are, I'm sorry to interrupt. What kind of things are coming up in the next month or so? Yeah. So things I'm excited about um, in the next month or so, first off, I'm going to be looking at not for harvesting yet, but I'll be checking on my blackberry patches because mm -hmm. they will start to, you know, be forming berries here soon. Um, pine pollen. So the Eastern white pine, uh, those pine uh, or the pollen buds uh, will be probably filled at that point. And we do collect some pine pollen for uh, additions to pancake mixes or uh, just for teas. And pine pollen has kind of a swath of uh, nutrients and vitamins kind of built into it, but it's really prized for its testosterone boosting. Hey. All right, we're so, gonna get that hard. Right. And so and so <laughs> not a spring uh, chicken anymore. It's not something that you would probably, you know, want to have unless you wanted some form of, of a testosterone boost. But uh so that's something that we like to harvest. It's a really kind of like a almond flour flavor, so Ooh, it's really nice. nice. And nice. uh we add it to a lot of like I said, baked dishes. Um right now, uh a few of the spruce trees that I harvest from, they're sending out their new fresh lime green spruce tips. And that's a really fun one because you can either just eat them fresh uh, or you can do something like spruce tip jelly, where you take a couple cupfuls of just the lime green spruce tips that are just now forming at the ends of the bows. And you can add those and just make a jelly with them. And so you would, you know, boil them in water and add your pectin and whatever type of sweetener you wanted. And you have this really, delicate citrusy type of uh spruce flavored jelly and that one's just a lot of fun and uh oftentimes though i'll harvest you know six to eight cups worth but when i get back to the house to actually produce my jelly i've eaten the cup or something in the drive home because <laughs> they just they're really sweet and spruce tips uh when they're young like this in the spring unlike pine needles they're very soft and so it's not like you have this waxy you know, exterior to get through, you, you just have this really soft, delicate spruce tip. And so it just kind of melts in your mouth after a few chews. And again, it's just a really citrusy flavored uh, bite and loaded, like chock full of vitamin C, just delicious. And uh, like I said, the jelly thing's a lot of fun, especially with, you know, if you have kids and you can candy the spruce tips as well. That's something that a lot of people are into. You can just candy them and with like maple syrup or what have you. Um, so that's a really exciting one. I'm going to be checking my uh, cattail uh, yeah. stocks here soon for cattail pollen. So that's something that we also collect. We collect it in a similar fashion uh, or for similar uses as I had uh, before mentioned for the pine pollen as far as adding it into baked dishes. Uh, 
cattail pollen, of course, you can harvest that in a higher quantity than with, uh, with pine pollen. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, when you're harvesting something like, like, for example, the cattail pollen, depending on how you're doing it, the intention on, on foraging isn't just to take and, you know, not try to reciprocate or to take unsustainably. And what I mean by that is for people who forage, you know, something like spruce tips this time of year, you know, I find a, a patch or various patches of spruce trees to do a basically an to evenly distribute my impact on those spruce trees, right? And so I'm not going to be picking the spruce tips off of, you know, every single bow right, of a right. spruce that I find because what you're removing is the, the actual lorax. <laughs> there you go, right? So you're removing that New Year's growth, yeah. and so you have to be mindful that, you know, by me taking this to put into my body or to feed my family, I'm going to be, you know, basically disrupting the growth for this season having said that you know that's not a lethal harvest when you do that on that particular species um you know so that's all, all also something that i really go into depth with during these workshops is not only what's edible you know what is more nutrient dense than the other but but also how to actually harvest these species in a way that actually really comes from more of a reciprocal type of understanding on how to harvest from them that can maybe promote more growth, but also at least how to harvest them where they're not being hurt. Their colonies are being hurt. Unless again, it's an invasive species yeah. where maybe it's, uh, you know, worthwhile to do so. Yeah. I'm, gl- I'm or, glad you brought that up because it, it is possible to love this stuff to death <laughs> <laughs> with garlic mustard. We literally want to do that, yeah. but, <laughs> right. but there are other things that we've seen. This has become problematic with things like wild ramps, People love them, right? Correct. People are always wanting to eat them. And they they aren't like garlic mustard. They're not <laughs> as prolific. Uh, so it yes. is possible to overdo it, and we need to be careful. And that makes me think, too, about I've been wanting to ask, it, when we're thinking about a place like Louisville, which is pretty dense urban environment uh there's not that many wild places left um so how do people in a place like louisville do this in a a manner that's sensitive to the limited resources available to us as a big city right sure no i mean and that's a great question um my my only real answer to it is to it, it involves being involved in a community uh it's very difficult to be able to have this type of interaction and relationship in an urban environment, largely, unless you have some form of community. And that really just comes down to something as simple as, you know, if you notice that your neighbor has, just for example, instead of a whole bunch of arborvitas, they have a bunch of uh, Norway spruce or something. You can say, hey, you know, do you mind if, uh, if I harvest your spruce tips this year? And maybe you just do it on a cyclic basis where maybe you harvest on the even or odd years. Or mm, maybe, from this, maybe from this tree this year and the next tree the next year, right? Um, or, Hey, you know, your yard is really beautiful. And I've noticed that you have 10 to 20 pounds worth of chickweed growing outside of your garden bed. You know, would you mind if, instead of you weed eating that, if I just cleaned it up for you? And then that that's more of an immediate urban tactic, which I believe can work. And I would say 10 times out of 10 times that I have experienced bringing that to people, they've either had a lot of questions that's resulted in them looking at those weeds in a different way totally new way yeah or at the very least they will say go ahead i don't care 
And at least if you're given that answer and you maybe save their phone number or put a pin in your phone of where that was occurring this time, at, you know, what year or what time of the year, you can go back to those areas and make that connection to say, hey, look, it's George. I'm, I'm here. It's uh, it's it's a black walnut season. And I just want to let you know, uh, I, I could stop by this weekend and, you know, collect those, you know, those 30 gallons of black walnuts if you're okay with it again. And, and so it's really just about observing, yeah, you know, and having, and having a very observant kind of mind, you know, you can be driving down a city street and all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden come across, you know, six service berry trees and that, that could yield enough fruit to, you know, fill up your freezer three times over. For sure. So it's, it's all about having connections. And for people that maybe don't have that option, I would just strongly suggest going out into natural places that maybe are a bit out of the city. Mm. Maybe, you know, I know that that can be difficult for some people, but for people that do have the means to, to travel outside of the city and maybe to go to maybe some national parks uh, or national forests, which is probably more closely mm -hmm. uh, for this area. Um, because you can go online and get a simple type of outline of what is, you know, harvestable without a permit. And if there is something that is harvestable with a permit, go and get that permit, you know, pay that $20 to the forest service to go and harvest, you know, $2,000 worth of produce. <laughs> um, right. And so it's all about having connections. And of course, for the people who have the land, you know, when I go and do consulting work for people, we do these wild food consulting walkthroughs where basically people will have me come out and I'll walk their property with them. And I'll point out every single species that's available visibly to me upon that season. So that varies, of course, depending on the season. But I'll make a note of every single species and potentially what they could do with it and how they could continue to have that on their property year after year after year. And I'm not surprised anymore, but I was at first about how many species I would provide to them that they would have always and forever written off as not being anything more than a weed right. or anything more than a tree or just something, just background, really. Right. White and, noise on their land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh, I, you know, that's been, that's been, you know, these chances have been happening every year. And so... You know, when you can enlighten people about, you know, hey, you could potentially cut your grocery bill in half or, you know, you, you know, you're struggling with maybe inflammation or maybe uh, a, a fog over your head. Well, turns out, you know, you have a five pound lion's mane mushroom fruiting, you know, from this beech tree on your property and turns out, you know, that mushroom helps with cognitive issues and can help build new neuropathways. And so there's all these different things that, again, people either, you know, weren't raised knowing, so no, no harm on them, no foul. Uh, but if they can learn that about their landscape, whether they inhabit it or are closely living next to those areas and can interact and gain some of that, I think we owe it to ourselves to participate in that. Yeah. Well, sure. we're, we're getting towards the end of our time, and I haven't asked something I've been dying to ask, which it, for, for those of us who are already into this, it's like obvious. But for I think for the vast majority of our listeners, we should talk about fear. Like people are <laughs> afraid. People are afraid of eating something that is 
not packaged that that someone hasn't already like approved for them to eat right so and right. and with kids i'm sure you see it's it's a little different with kids but let's talk about adult fear about wild things like how do you overcome that with people do you have people showing up for your workshops who are afraid of this stuff i'm so glad that you brought that up justin and the answer is yes and again, yes, the kids are usually a bit more, you know, they believe and they, they see someone who's out here to tell them something. So they kind of go for it. But uh, but yeah, usually adults, they have a bias. And it's like you said, it comes from, you know, having lived their mainly their whole life with something that says food. Right. It's labeled eat, you know, <laughs> so um, there is this type of bias that you have to break through with certain people and, and some more than others, you know, there's obviously just people who understand it from the get out. And that's why they're there in the first place is because they already know it. Mm. They just want to be maybe shown it. Yeah. But yeah, there is a huge divorcement from what we see food is. Yeah. And so, you know, not everyone looks at something like a trout lily bulb or a chanterelle as food. They will look at it and say, oh my, you know, that's happening out here. That's occurring out mm -hmm. in nature. And so there is a fear. I try to really uh, acknowledge the importance of learning species mm -hmm. in, in an effort to not have problems with that. You know, some of the main questions I always get is, have you ever poisoned yourself? Yeah. Have you, have you ever almost died? Um, this and that. And, you know, has my body reacted to foods in an unfavorable way? Yes. Has that happened from food from the grocery store or a restaurant? <laughs> yes. So it's not as bad as a bag of chips, right? Yeah. That's the point that I make is that everybody, you know, has, you know, variables on how they react to foods, right? And yeah. so um, outside of that, I will try to go in as depth as I can about, you know, going botanical. If I have to get botanical about, you know, the leaf arrangement, uh, smells are a huge thing. Mm. Coloration. Mm. Uh, and then especially when it comes to, to fungi, it's like, you know, time of year, the ecosystem. You know, so many different fungi have a particular role in ecology. And so if you see something that you might think is A, but it's not, you know, refer back to this, you know, conversation where I said, oh, it's growing from wood. These exclusively grow from wood. So if you see it growing terrestrially out of the soil, you know, take that step and see, well, maybe it's, maybe it's fruiting from buried wood. Mm -hmm. And if it is, then maybe you're okay. But if you see that it's just come popped right out of the soil and there's nothing underneath it, you know, that's not that species. And so it's really about making a proper ID out in the field with people and trying to, you know, help people that do have the fears you know, and, and also one of the things that can help, at least from a workshop standpoint, is is eating it in front of them, yeah, right? right? Being the guinea pig. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like so much of those workshops can just be me eating and what? then talking Watch with Georgie. a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm mainly talking about fruits or... Uh, or, you know, herbaceous plants, you know, you, you know, full disclosure, you're not, you're, you're never supposed to eat a raw mushroom, even if it's coming from the grocery store, you're never supposed to eat raw mushrooms. They all need to be prepared with heat before they're consumed. And so, you know, and then the same with stuff like acorns, you know, you're not going to just mm -hmm. pick up acorns and eat them. There's a whole long process of uh, leaching the tannins out of those acorns, mm -hmm. which I also have taught an entire workshop last year on how to do that, you know, and uh, they're not all foods are created equal. Not all foods 
you can just, you know, pop in your mouth right from the stem, right from the soil. But there are those. And to kind of follow up with the last part of, you know, that point in question that you made, it's really just about trying to get rid of that fear. Um, we are so far removed from what is truly real as far as food goes. And when I try to tell people about how, where I'm currently at with eating wild food, you know, they can, they can really see a lot of enthusiasm and that sometimes can ex excite them enough to believe me anyway, and maybe try it for themselves. So, well, we are nearly out of time. I guess we have time for one last question. Hart, have you been itching to ask anything else? I have about, uh, 20 um, different oh, plants wow. here that I want you to tell me how to find, prepare, and eat. Uh, is that too much? All right. We're going we're gonna to hire the Hungry Forager to come to Hart's house, it looks like. There you go. <laughs> you have my right. number, Hart. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. I mean. This uh, is great. Yeah. George and I talked about doing videos and stuff. It's like I, I can so see a, a series where yeah, we right. get out into the woods and you just show people what's what. And uh you have a contagious enthusiasm totally. and knowledge of this stuff. And uh, I can't wait to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And, and really the, just to reiterate one last thing, it, it's, it's this whole program is based around normalizing and bringing yep. this information to anybody. It's yep. not about overwhelming people with tons of Latin names. Those can be important <laughs> for field IDs nonetheless, but, it's not about this ego thing. It's yeah. not about uh, overwhelming people. It, it's about, and that's why also too, uh, I don't take people out and try to show them every single thing that yeah. is edible at one particular class because classes generally are three, four hours, but there's so much out there. But I try to focus on the things that people can start with. It's all about how can you start? And, and I'll use the quote from a very... Uh, prolific and authoritative forager that lives up in Wisconsin named Samuel Thayer. And he always has said, learn one plant at a time. And then he uses this really beautiful uh, method of what he calls the banana method, more or less, which is where if you, you know, learn a plant or a fungi or a nut or a berry, what have you, learn that in a way that you would look at it like you would a banana. Mm. You don't look at a banana and think, is that a banana? You know. And so <laughs> if you can get that type of confidence and connect, uh, connection to a wild food, you got it figured out. And you Perfect. never have to worry about, am I going to get sick or not? Because you just know. Well, that's a great note to end on. I'm sorry we're all out of time. We feel like we just scratched the surface of foraging. Thank you so much, George Barnett, for joining us today and getting us inspired to get out there and start eating off the land, my friend. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure, Justin and Hart. Thank you so much for making this happen. It's, it's been a lot of fun, guys. All thank right. You, Brian. Check them out at thehungryforager.com, and we will be back in your ears here on Truth to Power again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.